In our first lesson tonight, we're backtracking a little bit in a sense, because last week we looked at the baptism of Jesus and then his subsequent being sent out into ministry, his anointing uh, and his resistance of Satan's temptations and tests. We're actually backing it up a chapter here to Matthew chapter 2 tonight. This is a sort of famous account of the wise men, which we often associate with Christmas, and it kind of is, but it is one of the first very clear evidences of Gentile people, that Jesus is a Messiah, not just of the Jews, but for all mankind. And you have these guys from the Far East who are now coming at great distance, at great cost, to bow and give gifts to Jesus. Read from Matthew 2, beginning with verse 1, and we're going to pick it up after this with our sermon lesson in a little bit. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was very disturbed by all of it and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. They had to search the scriptures to find that. And upon stumbling across a verse in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, they didn't number it like that then, but that's what they found. It said the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Uh-uh, not what he's intending. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen, when it rose, went ahead of them until it stopped at the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is God's word. All right, as I said, we're continuing on in Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 13, picking up. We just read about the Magi, and at the beginning of Matthew chapter 2, uh, starting with verse 13, it says, When they, that's the Magi, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are now dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. 
Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. And so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. And as I mentioned earlier, we are now two weeks into our worship series on the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, it's probably, we're going to keep going through Matthew through Easter. So we're going to be in this in a while, and I want to hit a couple major themes of Matthew, even tonight, sort of as foundational. One of the things that we're going to find is Matthew has, uh, depending on how you're counting, about 124 either quotes or allusions to the Old Testament in his gospel by a sizable amount that is the most in a New Testament gospel. It's also the reason, therefore, that we are subtitling our series, the one that you have been waiting for, because there is this unique emphasis on the fulfillment of prophecy uh, in Matthew's gospel. And not only that, but actually one commentator that I read this past week said that if you traced every paragraph of Matthew's gospel getting to the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7, every single one of them, you can make a direct correlation to Old Testament narrative. In other words, it's not just that Matthew is quoting Old Testament scriptures, it's that he's writing his narrative in such a way that it parallels some of the Old Testament major narratives. We saw a little bit of this last week when Pastor Krieger was preaching on Jesus' baptism and his exit out into the wilderness for 40 days of testing. Early Jewish readers absolutely would have understood that Matthew is trying to position Jesus as a superior Moses, a superior deliverer who also identified with his people. And Moses led the people through the waters of the Red Sea, and then he led them out into the wilderness for 40 years of testing. Those correlations, those are not coincidental. God orchestrated all of it, but Matthew is recording it in an artistic fashion so that you understand that all of human history under God's sovereign control is playing out and being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Similarly, today we get what is sometimes referred to in history as the slaughter of the innocents and also the exodus and exit and escape to Egypt and coming back from Egypt. And in our first lesson, what we had was the Magi, and the, who are the Magi? The Magi are these Persian scientists who traveled hundreds of miles to go and worship Jesus Christ as the newborn king. And they're actually bringing some gifts that are very telling. And it's Matthew's sort of concise way of saying they knew exactly who this guy was. The gifts they gave, they gave him gold because they knew he was coming to be a king. They gave him incense because incense was used in worship and they understood that he was divine, not just human. They gave him a gift of myrrh because myrrh was an embalming spice that was used at burial. And they seem to have, from the Old Testament scriptures, the idea that the Messiah was coming specifically with the intent of dying. They knew exactly who this guy was. And one of the things that Matthew is doing in Matthew chapter 2, then, is he's contrasting who the Magi are with who King Herod is. And their different reactions to the birth and the news of Jesus Christ coming are absolutely polarizing that foreshadows the polarizing aspect of Jesus Christ moving forward in the world. There are going to be wildly different opinions of him. Some people are going to drop everything they have, travel across the planet just for the opportunity to bow down and worship him. Other people like King Herod are going to do everything within their power to eradicate him from their lives. And this is 
Really, it's been taught by apologists and scholars and commentators throughout the years, the basic idea that you cannot have a neutral position on Jesus Christ. You cannot have a lukewarm position on Jesus Christ. What we learn is this: there's three basic positions. You can assault Jesus uh, because of you're angry with him. That's what King Herod tries to do. You can run from Jesus because you're afraid of what his lordship might mean. Or you can surrender your life and bow down and give everything to him as the Lord and master of your world, right? Those are the only three logical possibilities. The Magi decide to surrender everything, bow down and worship him. And as such, the angel of the Lord comes to them after they do this. And and he says, yeah, don't go back to Herod. Go back to your homeland, back to the far east by way of a different route. Now, while all of that is happening, we're also told that an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and says, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now, again, you got to put yourself in the mind of a, like a first century Jewish person. That reference to Egypt, that reference to a wicked king who's trying to kill baby boys, that reference to a nighttime fleeing, all of that, all of that represents uh, what happened to the Israelites past where they had a Pharaoh who was trying to kill baby boys back in Egypt, and they had to have an exodus that took place at nighttime. All of that harkens back to that. It might sound odd to us also that Joseph's family is fleeing to Egypt because we tend to associate Egypt with a place of oppression for God's people uh, in the history. But what you got to remember is this is 1,500 years later. So a lot can happen in 1,500 years. At this time in northern Egypt, there had amassed an enormous amount of Jewish people. In fact, one of the cities, Alexandria, which is one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire, uh, historians estimate that about a third of Alexandria was just Jewish people. And so Joseph's family could exist safely and anonymously there in Egypt. Now, while that is happening, again, what Matthew does is he flips back to the narrative in Palestine. What's going on? Well, when King Herod learns that the Magi have outwitted him and they're not coming back. He's furious about it. And through some calculations, he decides to kill all of the boys in Bethlehem, two years old and under. And we have to sort of pause there for a second. Because I'll tell you what, I remember when I was younger, when I was becoming a younger, uh, a young adult, and was becoming increasingly cynical about things. I remember thinking how odd it was that such a horrific tragedy like this, in fact, I distinctly remember having this memory sometime around uh, Columbine in my lifetime, which I was about 18 years old at this time. And like the, the slaughter of this many kids, this is global news. Why don't we have record outside of the Bible of what took place in Bethlehem? And I came to understand that my take on that was a little bit naive for a couple of reasons. One, Bethlehem, even though it's really important to Christians, was a very small village. Uh, And so most historians will say that it maybe, maybe had 15 to 20 boys under the age of two at that time. Secondly, when you study a little bit more about the character of who King Herod the Great was, Herod the Great was this important figure in first century AD in Palestine. And Herod the Great uh, has this notorious record of killing people. So he wiped out the entire Hasmonean regime before he came to power as the king of Judea. At one point in time, he killed over 300 of his noblemen. At one point in time, he killed over half of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which would be 35 prominent leaders in Israel. At one point, he killed his favorite wife and her mom. 
At one point, he killed three of his own sons, and even on his deathbed, he ordered that a couple dozen of his court representatives, that they also be killed just to ensure that there was plenty of mourning going on in the region at that time. Here's my point. The murder of 20 baby boys, not only is it perfectly consistent with Herod the Great's character, but you've got to understand that in a society that regularly practices infanticide, something like this probably doesn't make it as newsworthy in the grand scheme of the Roman Empire and probably doesn't uh, warrant Roman recording. It wasn't a big deal to Herod the Great, and it didn't register on his conscience. It did register in the hearts and minds of those parents that lost their kids. And it did register because God's heart breaks with his people's hearts It did register and it mattered to God. And in fact, it matters so much to God that he creates a prophecy about it. And I'm going to tell you what, it's one of the most complex prophecies in scripture. Uh, It is from Jeremiah chapter 31. It's quoted here in verse 18. I'm going to read it and explain it as complicated as it is. And then I'm going to tell you why I took the time to do it, right? A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, here's what this means. Uh, Bethlehem, the first time Bethlehem is actually mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 35. And you know what happens in Genesis 35? Rachel dies giving birth to a son. She names the son Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrows. And Jacob later names him Ben-Yamin or Benjamin, which means Uh, son of my right hand. Interestingly, both of those names is designed to point ahead to the coming Savior, a man who would be a man of sorrows, who would eventually ascend to sit at God's right hand. Jeremiah, fully well acquainted with that story, a thousand years later, as the Israelite young men are about to go into Babylonian captivity, so this is about 600 BC, he takes that passage and he applies it to the context of his day. And there was a location called Ramah, Ramah, so Jerusalem and Bethlehem are very close, and Ramah is just a little bit north of there. And Ramah was the location that a lot of young men in Israel, it's located in the tribe of Benjamin. They went there before their deportation over into Babylon. And so what Jeremiah is doing is he's taking that prophecy and and a mother crying over children, uh, and he's saying that's what's happening to the mothers in Benjamin right now as they're losing their sons off to captivity. The weirdest thing about it, though, is In his prophecy, see, in reality, it wasn't Rachel who cried. It was Jacob who cried over Rachel's loss. But in Jeremiah's prophecy, it's Rachel weeping. And what Jeremiah must take that to mean then is why is Rachel weeping? Because she gave up so much to give birth to that kid. She laid down her life for him. And he turned into a nation of people, a tribe of people, and they're all, all the sons, her great, 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 great grandsons are all getting deported off into Babylonian captivity. And she's, it's as though she's thinking to herself as she's weeping, what was it all for? Why even bother? And here you have 600 years later, Matthew is taking that exact same prophecy and he's looking at what's going on in Bethlehem and he's saying, you know what? The ultimate fulfillment of the mothers weeping over their kids is what takes place at the birth of the Messiah and these mothers in God's land who are now crying over the wickedness that they see existing in the world. It's one of the most detailed prophetic fulfillments in all of scripture. 
Uh, I hesitated to share it with you because I knew it would take a really long time to explain and I figured I'd probably lose some details along the way and forget something. Here's why I'm doing it. We're studying the Gospel of Matthew. There is not a book in the New Testament, arguably Hebrews, but there is not a book in the New Testament that goes out of its way further to show how Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. And therefore, even if you don't understand every possible detail in all of that prophetic fulfillment, I think it is helpful to know that God does. I think it's helpful to see how extraordinarily thoughtful and careful and detailed our God is in bringing these types of things to fulfillment. Now, we bounce back to Egypt, and we're told that King Herod, Herod the Great, dies in Israel only a couple months later. That's a wild story too, but we don't got time for it. Uh, But King Herod the Great dies, and now an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream and says, okay, it's safe. The guy who was trying to kill you has died. They get up, they go back to Israel. Once they get to Israel, they find out that who's now in charge? It's one of Herod's sons who possesses a lot of the same characteristics, unfortunately, of Herod the Great, and his name is Archelaus. And at that moment, Joseph panicked about this, gets another visit from an angel in a dream and says, okay, you need to get out of here. So somewhat reluctantly, he goes back to Nazareth in Galilee. And honestly, I think one of the obvious, maybe not obvious, uh, but one of the questions, why didn't Mary and Joseph go back to Nazareth in the first place? You know, they spent like maybe a couple of years down in Bethlehem and then they went over to Egypt and then they came back and they didn't first try to go to Nazareth. Uh, They tried to go to other spots. Why are they so reluctant to go back to the place where their extended family is and probably where their biggest support network and their relatives are? It's probably for a couple of different reasons, but one of the major reasons is hinted at in the last verse of our text here. It says, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. You know what the craziest thing about this statement is? I'll challenge you. You can comb through the entire Old Testament. You will not actually find a single prophecy that says that the Messiah is going to be raised in Nazareth. So wait a second. Did Matthew get it completely wrong? He says the prophet said it. Well, that's actually kind of the hint. He doesn't say a prophet said it. He says the prophets said it. And that probably indicates he's not talking about a specific prophecy. He's talking about a recurring theme that exists in the prophets of the Old Testament. What's the recurring theme? The recurring theme is that the Messiah is going to be lowly. He's going to be unimportant and non-noteworthy from the world's perspective. He is going to be what Matthew calls a Nazarene. Why does Matthew use the word Nazarene that way? Well, Nazareth was one of the most frowned upon places in the ancient Near East. We do this exact same thing today, by the way. We associate locations with, we immediately have assumptions. So in Milwaukee, I'm not even going to make jokes or anything because I know the sensitivity levels that are attached to uh, locations. But I will say this, every single spot, every neighborhood, every suburb, every, if I say the word Brookfield, or I say the word Tosa, or I say West Dallas, or I say Southside, or, or Northside, or Eastside, or Mequon, or you have assumptions. You got opinions about those people. You don't, I mean, you don't even know who I'm talking about. You got opinions. You characterize them. The ancient people in the ancient world did the exact same thing. And when the idea 
of a Messiah being raised in Nazareth, much like a Messiah being born in a manger in Bethlehem, it is a direct illustration of how God has a value system that overturns the warped value system of this planet. Uh, See, this is a persistent theme throughout Scripture. God calls constantly our attention to the upside-down nature and values of this fallen world. This is why when he brings about his salvation plan, which country does he choose? He doesn't choose mighty Egyptians. He doesn't choose mighty Romans. He doesn't choose mighty Babylonians. He chooses a little runt of a nation, which is unimpressive by the world's standards, called Israel. And when he's got giants to slay, he brings shepherd boys, not warriors. And when he wants to communicate to a great prophet, he doesn't come in hurricanes and tornadoes. He comes in a whisper. And when he's going to bring about the genealogy of our Savior in the ancient world, they always favored the firstborn son. So God almost always chooses the younger brother. So he chooses Abel over Cain and Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau. He also, in a world that values physical beauty, he will choose the less attractive sister over the more beautiful one. So he chooses Leah over Rachel. Or sometimes in a society that so values your family's worth by how many kids you have, he chooses the woman who can't have kids. And uh, the king is not born in a palace. He's born in a manger. And he's not raised in Jerusalem or Rome. He's raised in Nazareth. And when Jesus conquers Satan, he doesn't do it with a shiny sword. He does it through rusty nails that get driven through his own hands. It's not just that God likes underdogs. That's not the story. The story is that God is constantly mocking the ridiculous value system of a fallen planet. And when he redeems you, he redeems your value system to fall in line with his. Now, what does it mean? I got two takeaway points for you here this evening. The first one, I couldn't come up with a name. So I just wrote down a paragraph. Angels, obedience, and fulfilled prophecy, that is, God directs our plans. Uh, But angels, obedience, and fulfilled prophecy is the part that I need you to understand. The thing that struck me this week when I was studying this text more than any other thing, I had never seen it before in the hundreds of times that I've read this text, but there's a very clear formula in here. I don't know, maybe some of you caught it uh, way before I did, but there's a formula in this text, and it goes a little something like this. God communicates via angel and dreams, something to Joseph. Then when Joseph hears that message, so the first part is verses 13, 19, and 22. Then when Joseph hears that message, what does he do? He gets up and acts. He gets up and goes. He gets up and withdraws. He gets up and escapes. It's verses 14 and 21 and 22. And then after he does that, then we get this recurring phrase that says, and thus it was spoken through the prophets, the Lord blank, or this would happen. And it's with such geographic specificity that is unlike anything that you will ever find in world history. It specifically mentions Egypt and Ramah and Nazareth. I just saw a documentary not that long ago on Nostradamus, if you know who he was in relative modern history. He's considered one of the greatest prophets. It's it's ridiculous. The vagueness of his prophecies versus the specificity of Old Testament scripture writers. It's night and day different. And what this tells us, you know, this is kind of a big point, but all scripture is God-breathed, but it's also useful. That means when God records something, it's not just there because it happened in history. It's there because it teaches us something about ourselves and about our God and about our salvation 
So why does he record this section in Matthew chapter 2? I'm convinced God records this not just because it's legitimate history, but Matthew is recording it the way he does to show us these changes in location that might seem sort of simple to us. Not only is God directing all of it, but he's directing it to the degree that he had prophesied all of it. Now, what that means for your life is what? It means that God not only had a careful plan of salvation that he executed over the course of several thousand years for you, as impressive as that is, it means that every single detail of your life, the parents that you were born to, the language that you speak, the ethnicity that you come from, the chance that you are sitting here tonight in one of these seats, none of it is coincidental. God knew it like he knows and numbers the hairs that exist on your head. As a Christian, you have got to find comfort in that. You've got to use the resources that God gives you, that God foreknows and he plans and he communicates and he executes. And the formula it works something like this. Like in the text, I said, I don't know if you can read that or not, angels and dreams, and then there's obedience to what they say, and then there's the fulfillment of prophecy. This is the pattern that, and the formula that we see again. Now, God doesn't say that the exact same thing is going to happen to you. In fact, if you have a major life decision to make and you're waiting on an angel to come to you in a dream uh, to get some good advice, I don't recommend that at all. God does not promise that he's going to do that. Why? In part because in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. And his son sent his spirit. And his spirit inspired to be recorded the fullness of scripture. We have everything that we need to know already given to us, and therefore the flow, the formula still works approximately the same. God has communicated to us. We get up and we act in faith, and then God carries out and builds his kingdom through that. Practically, what does that mean for you practically in your life? I'll tell you what, I've counseled, uh, there's probably dozens of people in this room right now that have sort of inspired this point for me, but I have counseled dozens of people over the years who are wrestling with major life decisions. And it might be um, a job offer. It might be, do I ask this person to marry me? It might be, um, do we have more kids? It might be, what do we do with a kid who has gone off the rails in life? It might be, should we be moving? It might be, it, our brains are reason-making machines. Uh, I just finished a, a book by one of my favorite social psychologists. His name is Jonathan Haidt. The book is uh, The Happiness Hypothesis. But he spends a good deal of time in the book explaining that humans are constantly trying to make sense of stuff. Your brain non-consciously is trying to find patterns that provide utility in life. Now, we have a limited amount of energy. So to observe a big world, and you've got this tiny little, relatively speaking, that's not an insult, but a tiny little brain by comparison, uh, you can't process everything that's out there. Your senses do, but your brain can't. And so what your brain does is it narrows on, in on the thing that it thinks provides utility, the thing that it thinks gives meaning to life. What that means is we are constantly looking for meaning. Not only are we constantly looking for meaning, couple that with the fact that every one of us has an inherently self-focused heart. By nature, we come out thinking me first, not you first. And if you're a Christian, you couple that with the idea that you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. So those three factors, your brain is constantly looking for meaning, your heart is inherently a little self-centered, and the Spirit of God is inside of you, knows God is out there, knows God has plans and purposes. One of the things that I've found in counseling over the years, I've had numerous people 
tell me that they've received some kind of information from God. They rarely say sign because they know that sounds a little weird. But something happened in their life by which they have become convinced that God wants them to act or make a decision in a certain sort of way. Now, here's my suspicion, even though I don't always know. My suspicion, and one of the things that I have to do in counseling people through this, is I think oftentimes they're simply looking for something that rationalizes what their heart simply wants to do. And then they'd like some kind of divine stamp of approval on all of it. I promise you've done this in your life. Know yourself well enough to know how that works. And let me propose a different path. Focus on what you know God has communicated to you. Focus on what you know God's will is. As non-exciting as that sometimes might seem to your flesh, the Holy Spirit put a lot of time and energy into recording an inspired word of God. He left out everything that was non-essential. And he only kept in the things that he thought were absolutely essential for you to understand God and to understand yourself and understand God's will for your life. What that means is in your life, practically focus on the stuff that you know is true from God's word. You know his grace and mercy. You know his love and acceptance and forgiveness. You know he has prepared a place in, in heaven for you. You are an eternal soul and you're here for a moment. You also know what he's asked you then to do. You know he asks you to love God above everything, to love your neighbor as yourself, to show special attention to those who are marginalized in society, like the widows, the orphans, the foreigners, the poor. He, you know you're supposed to resist temptation. You know you're supposed to ask God's help on the, pro, on the process. Do the things. Obsess yourself with the things that you know God has already told you and act upon those things. Trust that a sovereign God is going to work out all the other details, the stuff that you and I tend, and the world tends to stress about all the time. Uh, all the stuff that is actually in many ways indiscernible to you, let God discern. The pattern looks like this then. Study what God said, act on it in faith, and trust that God will bring the kingdom results that only he knows. Now, how do you know? When you say, okay, my life isn't about my own hopes and my dreams for my life, but I'm going to obsess myself with what God has told me to do, and I'm going to trust that he's going to make me happy. How can I trust that somebody else knows how to make me happier than I can make myself? Here's how you know you can trust the guy. It's our final point. The ultimate murder of the innocent. As tragic as Pharaoh murdering the boys in Egypt was, as tragic as Herod murdering the boys in Bethlehem was, there was one who was more innocent than all those boys who voluntarily chose to be slaughtered in your place because he loved you that much. And that actually is the type of love and affection that you've been looking for your whole life. Matthew's gospel teaches us not only that Jesus is the Messiah that the Jews were looking for, it teaches us that Jesus, he's the rightness when everything in life doesn't feel quite right. He is the rightness, he's the righteousness that every human being is longing for. Matthew's gospel is obsessive with the Old Testament. The Old Testament, you've got to see, is not written to teach you how to live your life. It's written to tell God's plan of salvation and how Christ Jesus has fulfilled it for us. Jesus is the only person who ever did everything God asked him to do. He did what Adam couldn't do and Abraham couldn't do and Moses couldn't do and David tried to do but couldn't do. 
The Ten Commandments, the tabernacle, the temple, the worship, the sacrifices, nobody ever did it perfectly except Jesus. He's the ultimate priest, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate king who perfectly obeyed and yet chose to die on the cross to switch places with us so that when we believe in him, we freely get saved. He got what we deserved. We get what he deserves. Everything that I said in that prior convoluted point in number one, I fully stand by, it's 100% true, and yet I also say it with the full understanding that you can't do it, and neither can I. The greater point then is, in Christ Jesus, you've been saved even though you can't live like that. In Christ Jesus, you've been saved even though you can't live that way in number one. And yet, ironically, when you understand that he saves you despite that, when you know that, You experience a grace by which the Spirit injects a joy and a gratitude and a feeling of cosmic acceptance that actually provides the relational acceptance that you need to start trying to live like that. See, I I know that's kind of complicated, but by finding out that you can't do it, but God loves you anyways, it makes you appreciate him even more and it makes you want to do it. That's the great irony of it. Jesus He succeeded in a garden where Adam failed. And he was much better at venturing out into the unknown than Abraham was. And he was a much greater mediator than Moses was. And he was a much greater warrior than just killing a Philistine giant like David did. He he killed a a much bigger, much scarier giant. The, The wickedness and the sinfulness and the death of Satan himself and his victory became your and my victory. You can go on and on and on like this, and we'll continue to draw correlations between the Old Testament and New as we move through Matthew, but the main takeaway is the Bible is not about you. It's about Jesus, who was perfectly innocent, but he chose to die for us in love to make those of us who are genuinely guilty stand as perfectly pure before our Father in heaven forever. And when the implications of that start to set off fireworks in your head and your heart, you will just get up and go to the glory of his name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we study Matthew's gospel, help us see that you are what we have been looking for. Let your presence be known. In your name we pray. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.